0: Welcome to the Water's Edge podcast, a ministry out of Water's Edge Community Church in the heart of Houston, Texas. We hope that through this teaching, you'll find out more about the surprising, satisfying life that can be found in following Jesus. For more information about our church or teaching resources, head to watersedgehouston.org, all one word. Now for this week's podcast. Well, one of the great rags-to-riches story is the true story of Ira and Ann Yates. They lived out in West Texas, and during the 1920s, they were just barely, barely eking out a living farming. And in 1926, all that changed when uh, Transcontinental Oil Company drilled on their land, and immediately they hit a huge gusher. Six more followed, and they produced over 9,000 barrels a day the largest has been the, uh, well, a <coughs> well, 30, and it's, it has produced more than 8,000 barrels per hour. Long story short, obviously they became overnight multi, multi, multi-millionaires. They've given away tons of money, they have been very, very generous. But if you go out to West Texas, you'll find a town, and it's called Iran, I R A, A N. And it's the combination of those two. I've driven through it many times. Uh, <clears throat> and as I said, they've been incredibly generous. But overnight, overnight, truly the great, one of the great rags-to-riches story. But you know, there's a greater story than that. The greatest rags-to-riches story is the story of the person sitting in your seat. If you know Jesus this morning, there is untold treasure that we will spend an eternity exploring. And that treasure is described for us in Ephesians chapter 2. So that's what I'd like for us to look at, verses 1 through 10. As I said, the greatest rags to riches story you could ever ever imagine or hope for. So he begins, and it's very interesting. Brun and I didn't talk about uh, what I was going to talk on, uh, but he what he said this morning is exactly, is exactly what we're going to see um, in this Ephesians 2 passage. So he starts in he says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin, speaking to the Ephesians, or are mainly Gentiles, <clears throat> in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So this is deep, deep sin, and it's sin that we all traffic in. Uh, next verse. And look at the, notice the change here. Verses 1 and 2 is you, you Gentiles, basically. But now he changes it. And he says, among whom also we all, and now he's including himself, the uh, upright, uh, self-righteous moralist, we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. It doesn't get any darker. It doesn't get any deeper than what we find here. Now, how can Paul the upright moralist, throw himself in the same category as the ones he started talking to, the Gentiles who basically are going out and getting drunk and fornicating so forth. Uh, Paul's not doing that. The, The moralist is not doing that. But let me suggest this. Sin comes in two flavors. Sin comes in two flavors. Flavor number one is the one we're most familiar with and it's blatant disobedience. It's the story of the younger brother in the story of the prodigal son who gathers all, goes, goes uh, into a far country, spends it all in lust and sex and who knows what else. But just as odious, and I would suggest maybe more odious to God, is not blatant disobedience, it's counterfeit obedience. And that's the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, who stays at home, lives a squeaky clean life, but is completely eaten up with judgmentalism, and pride, and entitlement, and all these different things that go along. And so both of these get thrown into the same category. Now part of this is seeing that the way we define good and the way God defines good are two very, very different things. We normally define good at street level, and what I mean is this. You walk down the street, you see somebody five foot, someone six foot, somebody seven foot, big difference between them. You go up 100 stories and you look down, the difference has vanished. The Bible tells us, God looked down upon the children of men to see if there were any that did good, any that understood, any that came after him, and he says, no, not one. Now, how can that be? It's because when God goes to look at something and evaluate it as good, he looks at it through trifocals. And what I mean is this, there's there's three levels that you have to pass for God to consider something good. The most basic level is, is is it in accordance with the scripture. If it goes contrary to the scripture, clearly right off the bat, we're in in what the Bible would call sin. But many people pass that test, many non-Christians pass that test, and are able to, to do just simply the external. The second question is not, is it in accordance with the scripture? Is it done in dependence upon the spirit? See, Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul says, whatever is not of faith is sin. So it's not just enough to do the right thing, it's to do the right thing in desperate dependence upon the Spirit of God to do that through us. That's another level two, but there's still another. And that's why we read in the Bible, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so number three is this, is it done for God's glory? Is it in accordance with the Scripture? Is it done in dependence upon the Spirit of God? And is it done for God's glory. So when he says all have sinned, the word for sin literally means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. For all have sinned and fallen short of the target, and that is the glory of God. You and I are born into this world with a nature. is not just, is not neutral. It's actually hostile towards God, and there has to be an intersection. There has to be a collision, if you will, that we're about to see. But I think it's, the, the better that we understand the depth of our sin, the better we're going to appreciate what God's provided. and That's the beauty of Isaiah. Isaiah is a self-righteous prophet, you know, a, a good man. But when he sees himself in the light of God's blinding holiness, he realizes, wait, woe is me. I am a man of what? unclean lips why would a prophet say that the best thing a prophet has going for them is their lips that's their strong suit and he sees even in the light in god's perfect light even my strength does not measure up so charles colson put it well years ago he said unless we understand that in our natural sinful state we much more resemble adolf hitler than we do jesus christ we really don't know ourselves or another way to put it I like to say is this. If every thought that all of us have thought in the last 20 minutes, if every thought was put up on that screen, we'd all die, including me. You'd be amazed what you can think of when you're preaching. You'd just be amazed. (laughs) But that's why we need the blood so desperately. That's why we need the spirit so desperately. And so what we find is probably the the, the next verse, probably the most important two words in the English language, but God but God. And now we're about to get catapulted, skyrocketed up to incredible, incredible provisions. And something that's very fascinating to me here is that he's going to talk to us about three things that we become by virtue of being believers. And interestingly, these three things all meet the deepest psychological need of man. Uh, I think think Abraham Maslow did the most perceptive work in unbelievers ever done. on on man's uh, nature and psychology. And we're going to find that, ironically, he just stumbled on the truth, and we're going to find that God answers those in spades, way beyond spades. So first of all, he says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, next verse, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, next verse, That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, and finally verse 9, not of works lest anyone should boast. He uses every word in the Greek language for love, mercy, grace, love, all just, just poured down upon us. And the first thing we find is that God's first calling for our lives is that we become trophies of his grace. Trophies of. So go back, John, if you would, to verse 7. We've been graced beyond measure. And by the way, with Maslow, the very first psychological need that we have after food and clothing and so forth is love, relationship. In unspeakable, unspeakable. Uh, riches uh, are given to us in this kind of love. So notice that the way he puts it is interesting. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us, Christ Christians. What's he saying there? What does he mean in the ages to come? I can't absolutely prove this, but I have a strong, strong suspicion that what's going to happen is that you and I in eternity are going to serve as fodder for worship. And what I mean is this. The spotlight will hit different ones of us will hit all of us at one time or another. And when all of eternity, all the angels, all the redeemed saints see the spotlight on me, they will worship God because they will say, what an amazing God that he could get Dwight here. How great must our God be? And then it'll be your turn. And then it'll be your turn. So in one sense, no believer ever lives a truly, truly completely useless life because at the least we will serve as an opportunity for ongoing worship for all of eternity. So that's, that's number one, that we become a trophy of his grace, for by grace you've been saved through faith that not of yourselves, famous verse. It's the gift of God. My prayer is that everybody here has taken God up on his offer and received the gift that he's offering to us. That's the essence of, of faith. But then he goes on and in verse 10, he gives us two more. First of all, we're a trophy of his grace. And then he says this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And the, the second thing he calls us to is not simply that we be a trophy of his grace, but that we be an exhibition of his power. And this comes from this very unique word, workmanship. Again, this is why your concordance other than the Bible, is your very, very best friend. You find more things out by using your concordance than you will any other way. This is a great word. It's only found one other time. It's only one other time that this word is used in the New Testament, and it's used over in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. He's talking about to the unbelievers. For God has shown it to them, next verse, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood, here's the word, by the things that are made. It's actually the Greek word poima. We get the word poem from it. Even his eternal power and Godhead. They are without excuse. So what's he saying here? I think what he's saying is that the unbeliever cannot come before God and say, God, you never gave me a chance. You never showed yourself to me. And God will say, well, actually... I showed myself to you every day of your life. When you saw the sunrise and the beauty in that, I was beckoning you, come home. When you looked at the flowers of the field and the stunning beauty that I so carefully had created them with, I was calling out to you, saying, do you think this is an accident? No, it's the handiwork of God. Every day of your life, I was calling out to you through nature saying, come to the one who created nature. You haven't seen the best yet, but you didn't have time for me. But you know what this passage is saying? Back in 2.10, in, in, uh, uh, what he's also saying is that just as well, God might say, but <clears throat> not only did I use nature to try to get your attention, I used people to try to get your attention. You remember that coach that you had in 10th grade? That coach who was different than the other coaches, his language was very different, and he invited you over to their house time and again. He took a very, very special interest in you. You remember how good that felt, and you knew it had something to do with Jesus, but you didn't have time. Then you remember that boss you had, and remember how he went out of his way to try to help you. Extraordinary bonuses, always a kind word, but you didn't have time for him either, even though you knew there was something with the spiritual side. And God could say, I've been calling out to you every day of your life. Every day of your life, through nature and through people. And what this passage is telling us in no uncertain terms is that you and I are God's walking billboards. We're his wow factor here on planet Earth. And one of our great, great callings is to simply fulfill the design for which we're created. So the second thing that Maslow talks about is not uh, uh, love, it's self-esteem. It's self-esteem. You know what you find here, though? God gives us something far better than self-esteem. It's called Christ-esteem. And it's basically understanding you cannot have a more significant purpose in life than to be God's burning bush that we talked about last week. To simply be the exhibition of his power. to to show God off primarily through things like love and joy and peace and long-suffering, all the different fruits of the Spirit. You're looking for purpose in life? Look no further. You can't have a higher purpose than simply to be God's megaphone, simply to be God's billboard, simply to be God's wow factor. So we're a trophy of his grace. We are an exhibition of his power, And then this fascinating passage here. this, This should be one of the most freeing verses that you ever traffic in. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Two great callings in life, to be and to do. We're called to be something, and we're called to do something. But notice what he says of this. That God has prepared beforehand the sum total of good works that he wants to do in our lives. We can't do everything. Surely we've figured this out by now. We can't do everything. But what we can do is what he's especially appointed us to do. And before we ever hit planet Earth, the script of our life is already written. Every good work that God wanted to do in and through us has already been determined. Our great calling in life is simply to just go with the flow. Go with the flow this is exactly how jesus lived so the very first words that we hear from jesus's mouth age 12 are found in luke uh, 2 and he said to them why do you seek me did you know not know that i must what be about my father's business really in the greek i must be in the things of my father at age 12 he knew he was a man on mission at age 12. did you not know i must be in the things of my father then A couple of verses after that, John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, and what? Jesus wasn't here to do his own thing. He's here simply to finish the work the Father had set aside for him. Then over in John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. John 9, 4, this is so important. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. This is such an important verse. But notice what the works are. The works are those uniquely crafted uh, works that he has for us to do. And this is why abiding in Christ, this is why staying close to Christ is so crucial. So that we have a sense of what those works are. A huge, huge part of this is going to be knowing what your spiritual gift is and utilizing. it. Play to your strength. And that is a major, major part of these, these different uh, what those works will be. Then over in John 17, 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished what? The work you gave me to do. And then finally, John 19, 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, notice he doesn't say I am finished. He says what? It is finished. Do you see this with our Lord? Now, let me read to you from Oswald Sanders because he's such an important, important thought. Our calling is not to be busy for Jesus. Our calling is not just to try to figure out different ways that we can get involved in ministry and activity. Our calling is to stay at the feet of Jesus like Mary did and maintain and deepen that intimacy with him because Mary was a worshiper, but she also worked. You know what her great work was? She's the only one who understood that Jesus was going to the cross. You know why? Because she's the one who breaks the alabaster vase and the perfume and 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 puts it over uh, in Jesus's feet. And the disciples said, "Wait, you shouldn't. She shouldn't have broken that. We could have given that to the poor." You remember what Jesus said? Leave her alone. One. And then he said this: "She has kept this for the day of my burial." She's the only one who got it. They still didn't didn't know that he or didn't believe he was going to the cross. She kept it for the day of my burial. Where did she get that information? Sitting at the feet of Jesus, soaking in his word. This is why intimacy with him is so, so important. So Oswald Sanders writes this, and I think this is fantastic. Our Lord moved through life with majestic and measured tread, never in a hurry, yet always thronged by demanding crowds, never giving those who sought his help a sense that he had any more important concern than their particular interests. What was his secret? Knowing that every man's life is a plan of God, he realized that his life and all the conditions in which it was to be worked out were alike under perfect control of his father. His father's plan had been drawn with such meticulous accuracy that every hour was accounted for and adjusted to the overall purpose of his life. His calendar had been arranged. His sole concern on earth was to fulfill the work God had given him to do in the allotted hours." But I I love that thought. Our Lord was very busy, but he was never frustrated or harried. He was busy. Why? Because he was busy staying centered on those things that God called him to do. There's unique strength in doing the things God's called you to do. There is burnout in doing those things that God hasn't called us to do. And that very, very often often happens, unfortunately. So the final thing is that that, that, um, we're to be a vehicle for his work. A trophy of his grace, that's the starting place. Secondly, an exhibition of his power, Our calling is to be, not just to do. And then finally, a vehicle for his work. So Paul will summarize all this in his last letter, 2 Timothy. And he's going to tell Timothy, basically, the book of 2 Timothy, I would entitle it, Make Your Life Count. If God was going to write you a personal letter, guess what it would be? Just take out 2 Timothy and put your name right there. I guarantee you that's what he would tell you. He would tell you exactly what Paul told Timothy as as Paul's reaching out to the uh, prison cells, grabbing Timothy by the beard and saying, make your life count. It's a great, great book. You be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and then what? Fulfill. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. Nothing could rival coming to the end of one's life and being able to say these next words. I fought, not a good fight. There's all kinds of fights out there, but there's only one good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. But let's go back to the previous verse where he says, the time of This is a great Greek word. It was used to describe a merchant ship that had come into the harbor, had unloaded all of its cargo, and now was setting sail to go back home. Why? Because all the cargo had been unloaded. You know the greatest thing you can do with your life? Unload the cargo. God's unique cargo for you. I love that idea. Just unload the cargo. There's no end to the number of things that could be done, should be done. But God has very specifically, this is what I've called you to. Your spiritual gift, that's why he tells Timothy, fan in the flames the gift of God that's in you. Disciple making, those would be two huge parts of um, uh, finishing. But that is then uh, level or whatever, is uh, not love, not self-esteem, but self-actualization. The thing about Maslow is he wasn't a believer. And he didn't understand, he'd stumbled on something very significant, but he hadn't gone far enough. Because we don't just want love. We want the kind of love only God can supply. And that is a love that is so irrational, so relentless, so absurdly unconditional, that our souls can go off duty and know this is the only love that will really get the job done. We don't want self-esteem. We want Christ-esteem. We want the joy of, of, of stopping worrying about if we have what it takes and just enjoy the fact that we're inseparably united to one who has what it takes in every situation. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, as Paul will say. And finally, we want our lives to count. One of the saddest lines in human language, I think, comes from Somerset Moham's book called *Of Human Bondage. And he, right there, he's talking about some older people, and he adds this. These old folk had done nothing. And when they died, it would be as if they had never lived. There is no more tragic epitaph than that. And when he died, when she died, it'll be as if never lived. Contrast that with uh, Abel, who being dead still speaks. That's the calling for all of us. And it's not self-actualization, it's Christ-actualization. You want a job big enough? Look no further. Look no further. It is there in space. So I love, love this passage. Uh, it just, it, it, it's a great reminder You could go back again and again. Why am I here? To be a trophy of his grace and help others become trophies of his grace. Why am I here? To be. To be a reflection of who Jesus is. To be his workmanship. Why am I here? To do. To do those unique good works that God has set apart. That nobody else, you don't realize this. Nobody else can be your understudy in life. Nobody else can step in and take your place. If they don't get done, there's nobody who can step in and remedy that. And I just love Jesus' laser focus of saying, I must work the works of him who sent me it's day. Because quickly the night's coming. And as Robert Moffat put it, we have all eternity to celebrate our victories, but one short hour before sunset in which to win them. We're going to be out of here very quick, folks. <laughs> we really are, it, especially from an eternal perspective. Now is the time. Now is the, 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 the day that we can work. You know, when World War II was over, um, they sent a church group of kids over to Germany to help out with the uh, reconstruction. And uh, they came to a particular town, and um, there was a statue of Jesus, and it was, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Only because of the bombing, the arms had been blown off. And they tried to work with it. They couldn't, um, couldn't quite fix it. So somebody at the bottom wrote these words. His only arms belong to you. And that's what it's all about. Jesus is still alive today. But his only voice, his only vocal cords, his only arms belong to you. They belong to me. Let's use them well while there's still time. Lord, we just thank you that you take people like us and do the most amazing, amazing thing as you turn us into game changers. You turn us into people who can make a difference in this world. You turn us into people who are loved beyond all measure. And Father, I just pray that we would play that part to the hilt In Jesus' name, amen. Offer the Lord's Supper, and then we'll sing one last song.